This is Chris from Play Comics, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 207, When Harry Met Sally. Movie Review. Welcome to the show. I'm Chris McBrien, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now, this week, we're going to go all the way back to 1989, and we're going to review When Harry Met Sally. Uh, We're going to see how it holds up after 33 years. But before we get into the movie review, what is new in the world of pop culture for you, Derek? Hey, Chris. Uh, I want to start off with music. I know we don't generally do a lot of music, especially in our What's New section, but I felt... There was some, I had some good music stuff I wanted to run by today. So the, every year they do a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions. Mm-hmm. Artists that are very worthy get nominated and inducted into the Hall of Fame every year. Unfortunately, everybody can't go in in one year, so you got to space them out over time. And and what ends up happening is you you have remarkable artists that get overlooked over and over again. But eventually they get in for the most part. So today they announced the 2022 nominees. So okay. this is the the sort of the long list that will become the short list of the people that will actually go in. So this is a a who's who of music, and it'll be kind of a travesty if they all don't get in, but they all can't get in. But let me just read you the list. Do they have? So I have a question for yeah. you because I'm yeah. I'm more of a sports guy when it comes to the Hall of Fame stuff. So do they have like a finite number that they're allowed to put in every year, or can they put in like 50 people? I, I think there's a set number that they, again, I'm not that familiar with the rules, but mm-hmm. I, I think it's a set number every year um, or else. Yeah. You know, they could just say, here's 20 great artists, yeah. put them all in. Put but I in. think part of it is you, you want to, you know, if you put all the great artists in, in the first two or three years, then you get a lot of years where you're like, well, we don't have anyone left to put in. Um, but in any case, so, uh, so another thing in baseball, for example, the baseball hall of fame, it's really hard to get into. Um, but the Hockey Hall of Fame is like super easy to get into. There's people in the Hockey Hall of Fame, they shouldn't be there, no question. But there's lots of people in baseball that should be in, but they're not because it's a lot harder. How does the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame hold up? Is it easy to get into, you think, or is it hard to get into? No, I think it's hard. I mean, okay. I think that one of the criteria, if I remember correctly, is you have to have been in the business for something like 20 years or more. So it's not just like some flash in the pan who wins on American Idol. And then the next year they sell a number one album. It's like, let's put them in the hall of fame. It's like, hold your horses there, bud. You got to demonstrate that you, you have had a, a career of note before you can even be considered eligible. That makes sense. Yeah. I yeah. get it. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. So they got uh, 17, uh, 17 nominees that were announced. And then mm-hmm. they will obviously from this list, do, do, twid, you know, narrow whittle it down. down a little bit. Yeah. Okay. yeah, whittle. That's what I was looking for. Okay, let me read you the list here. And again, sure. this is literally a who's who of music. In no particular order, I'm just going to read them off in the, in the order they're on this list. Go for it. Eminem, Judas Priest, Pat Benatar, The Arrhythmics, Dionne Warwick, A Tribe Called Quest, Duran Duran, Lionel Richie, Carly Simon, Devo, Kate Bush, Fila Cootie, 
MC5, Dolly Parton, Rage Against the Machine, Beck, and the New York Dolls. Like, okay, I got I'm, some issues with this list. Okay, fire away. Ex- you did say the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, correct? Well, Not the Music the, Hall of Fame. Well, but it's it's the Music Hall of Fame. Who are we kidding? The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What the hell? Like Eminem? Okay, so Eminem, you know, fantastic, right? It's not rock and roll. Lionel Richie isn't rock and roll. Devo isn't rock and roll. Kate Bush and Dolly Parton. I mean, who doesn't like Dolly Parton? She was in nine to five. I mean, I think Dolly Parton's great. What the hell do you know? They'll belong in the rock and roll hall of fame. That's ridiculous. Am I, am I just being a grumpy old man yelling? You're being a grumpy old man and you're getting hung up on semantics. It's oh, it, man, it, Think of it more stupid. as the music hall of fame. Well, then call uh, it the music hall of fame. Yeah, but it's not as catchy and it's hard to sell tickets to the music hall of fame. So in any case, uh, how Pat Benatar and Dolly Parton are not already in the Hall of Fame just blows my mind. But uh, I, I think personally, I think we're going to see Pat Benatar, Dolly Parton, Lionel Richie and Duran Duran. Like, no questions. I think they're all getting in. The others, again, a lot of very strong contenders here. But uh, there's a handful here that I'd be like, well, I'd be kind of surprised if, say, Debo gets in, but Pat Benatar doesn't. But Stranger things have happened. Apparently, apparently Pat Benatar has been on the short list for like a decade and has constantly been overlooked. So I, I'm I, I'm confident that this will be her year. But anyway, we'll see. This is this is a you know, now we've got a little bit of time to to debate it and talk about it and play the songs by all these great artists while they figure out what they're going to do. I'm looking forward to seeing the final cut. That's really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. That's got me thinking okay. now. Yeah. So another just a, a more personal music thing. <laughs> so in the world of covid. We, things like concerts, live concerts, have been canceled and rescheduled oh, over yes. and over again as the venues have not been available for mm-hmm. the artists to perform in or the fans to sit down in. Or in some so, cases, the artists are, they got COVID. In some cases, play. the artists get sick as well. Yeah, so my wife and I, I think I mentioned on a previous podcast a while back, we got tickets to see Journey and Billy Idol. Come, <laughs> you did. That's yes. Come on to town. What a great pairing. Jeez. That's what we thought, too. And the the show is supposed to be in uh, about three or four weeks. Mm-hmm. And just today, I got a notice saying, uh, we're sorry to inform you that we're going to push this out. We don't have a new date, but we do plan to, to, you know, reschedule it at a later date. And I'm like, OK, that's not terrible. And Billy Idol will no longer be on the bill. Oh, man. However, they are replacing him with Toto. <laughs> Jeez. So I was chatting with my buddy and I said, uh, well, uh, since Toto is half as good as Billy Idol, do I get half my money back? Half your money back? <laughs> and he said, half as good as Billy Idol. I think you're being kind of generous there, bud. So, any case. Toto. Yeah. So I, it's I am like, looking- it's like, okay, you, you had tickets to go see Madonna. And I'm sorry, we had to reschedule. Instead, here's Tina Yothers, <laughs> the girl from Family Ties. Yeah. Well, like whatever. Yeah. I'm still very much looking forward to seeing Journey, but got to be honest, Toto, not on my bucket list of fans that I wanted to see. Billy Idol, I was very much looking forward because it's Journey with very special guest Billy Idol. And they're like, we're sorry, we have a new very special guest. And I'm like, "Eh, are they really that very special? I don't know. So in any case, that that that's sort of a little. I don't mean to laugh at your misfortune, but just Tina Yatters. I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. All right. Save it for the dad joke, buddy. I guess so, yeah. I'm an idiot. 
Uh, I had a chance Woo! to watch. A few, I had a chance to watch a few things this this week. Nothing uh, stellar and groundbreaking. Nothing. Uh, a couple of movies I didn't start before. Dina Yothers. No, unfortunately not. Oh, that's too bad. Um, had a chance to watch a. Uh, so I, I like stand up comedians a lot. And I had oh, sure. a chance earlier this week. I was just looking for something I hadn't seen before. Uh, the, from Saturday Night Live, Michael Che, who does the Weekend Update. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he had a new comedy special out uh, called Shame the Devil. It was obviously recorded in the last, say, six months because he talks about COVID and everyone in the audience has masks on. Uh, again, his type of humor doesn't necessarily land with everyone, but uh, I enjoyed it. It's not a lot of ha-ha, laugh out loud. It's a lot of more, like, humorous musings. But uh, I enjoyed it. It was decent. It was something – it was a new stand-up, so I gave it a whirl. Uh, and then a couple of a uh, couple of movies just showed up on one of my movie channels. Uh, I had a chance to watch them over the week. One was called The Bone Collector from 1999, starring uh, Denzel Washington and uh, Angelina Jolie, along with a bunch of other people. Queen Latifah, uh, Bobby Carnavale has a small part. Ed O'Neill has a small part. Louise Guzman, the the great Louise Guzman, has a small part. It's uh, the movie was okay. I don't know if you ever saw it. Um, it's no. basically a crime procedural. Um, it, it very much watches like an episode of Law and Order. Sort of the the gimmick is that Denzel Washington's character is paralyzed from the neck down, and he can only move a single finger, which he can use to manipulate a computer mouse. And so Angelina Jolie's like the young up and comer who he's like mentoring through the through the crime scenes and such. I mean, it's okay. It wasn't great. It was it was it killed ninety minutes. Uh, well, I guess it's two hours. Killed two hours. It was just okay. Uh, the other one I watched that I had not seen since the theater was. Alien Covenant came out in 2017. So, Chris, as you may or may not be aware, they did Alien, Aliens, Alien yes. 3, and Alien Resurrection. So yeah. you got four parts to the Alien, quote, franchise. Mm-hmm. And then that was it. And then many years later, they went to Ridley Scott and they said, we got a dump truck full of money here. We want you to make another <laughs> Alien movie. And he like, well. I could use another hard, cottage in the yeah, Hamptons. You drive a hard Let's bargain. Do it. Dump that money right into my garage and yeah. I'll see what I can come up with. And so he did a movie called Prometheus, oh, uh, which was sort of a prequel to the Alien franchise. And although it had a lot of promise, it wasn't great. But it had some neat ideas. Well, it made enough money and there was enough fan support. And they said, hey, why come up with an original idea when we can make another sequel? And so they made Alien Covenant, which is a sequel to Prometheus, both of which are prequels to the original Alien movie. And uh, this stinker was, yeah, I didn't really remember it very well, just that I didn't seem to like it so much. But I thought, ah, I'm going to give it another try. Yeah, no, don't bother giving it another try. <laughs> It was it was not great at all. Again, first forty minutes, you're like, okay, or maybe this movie has some promise. It introduces some 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 neat ideas. No, it ended up just being, oh my god, the aliens trying to kill everyone. Shoot him, shoot him. Yeah, I've seen that movie six times already. So, Alien Covenant, hard pass on that one. But Ridley uh, Scott got his second cottage in the Hamptons. Yeah, they're like, where do you want this second dump yeah. truck full of money? And he's like, just dump it in the <laughs> swimming pool that I put in yeah, after you gave me the first there, dump truck you? full of money. So, and apparently they're making yet another one because, you know, why go to something new when a franchise IP exists? Exactly. Yeah, that was my week. How about you, Chris? Any pop culture for us? I do. So there's this idea of influencers. It's a millennial thing. You know me, I watch nothing new, but I've heard about this. So my kids watch these guys on YouTube. Mostly it's just videos of guys playing video games like Minecraft. You know, and they, they put their head like up in the top corner and they yep. just yell stuff when they're playing. It's really, really dumb. And the thing is, <clears throat> I say to my kids, I'm like, like, are you, are you like, are you learning tricks? You know, like, like any secrets for how you play these video games? 
And they're like, oh no, we just like to watch them play the games. I just don't get it. Like, if you like Minecraft, then play friggin' Minecraft. Don't watch someone else play Minecraft on YouTube. Like, if you're not getting any tips or tricks or like cheat codes or something like that, then why the hell are you watching this crap? And I'm telling you, it is crap. I mean, there's like literally no substance to this junk. And they've got like millions of views. Some of them have like 25 and 30 million views. What the living hell is going on, Derek? Yeah, I don't get it either. And and I my I, I my my niece is a lot younger. She's into video games and and she watches this stuff too. And I when she was visiting us last summer and we were watching, I was watching some with her. And it's like the guys playing the game, or in some cases the girls playing the games, would talk about what they were doing. Like it's basically like they were doing a podcast while they were playing an episode of the, while they were playing the games, and they would have banter and. She was laughing, like, because obviously it's a lot of inside jokes and and context specific to the game. So I'm like, I wasn't familiar with the game, so a lot of it went over my head. But clearly, that was part of the appeal was that it was people who are very familiar with this with these games who who essentially do a a, a podcast while they're playing. Like, think of it that way. That and it's a form of entertainment. Yeah, but it's it's not entertaining, and there's no content. Well, I mean, you're like, you're not the target audience, dude. You don't play these games. Clearly, of course, you're not going to find it entertaining. I guess, I guess the thing is, like you and I, we work really hard around here. You know, we were just talking about that coming on before we came on the air, and I I'd like to think we put out some decent content. I mean, we're not yelling at a screen playing Minecraft or anything. And like I say, maybe I'm just the old guy yelling at kids to get off my lawn. You know, because I hey, I can't hear this episode of the Love Boat. You know, shut up or <laughs> whatever. But I hate to break it to you, Derek. But our, our producer, Sloth, has, has told me we ain't getting no 25 million views for the podcast around here. It's just, it's just mind-boggling to me. Just, I don't know. I just mind-boggling. Anyway, time for this. Here's your dad joke of the week. All right, Derek. What is the best part of Homer Simpson's pizza? Um... I don't know, the second pizza? The dough, Derek. Dough! The dough. The dough. Yeah, that joke, just like the dough, fell flat. Oh my God, he's so hot. No, he's so sexy. And Raiders of the Lost. How many times did you watch that before you finally went and looked for the Russell Crowe version? I'm, I'm really impressed. It's not as good as John Wick, don't get me wrong. This movie was fantastic. And I do believe Scorsese might have had his hand in that one. I, he might have in more ways than one. And then you couldn't, and then you couldn't, and then you couldn't. Beep, 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 beep. E.T. the extra Okay, so this week we're reviewing a movie from 1989 that was nominated by you, Derek. But before we get to the movie... The reason that the movie had to be from 1989, because we held our pop culture fantasy draft for the year 1989. And we did that on our last episode of the podcast. So we each drafted a list of three movies, three TV shows, three songs, and a personal pick. Now, a couple things. I just want to set this up. Coming into this draft, you know, we had held three previous drafts. We did 1981, 1984, and 1985. And I won all three of those by a pretty considerable margin like I mean the overall vote tally was 21 to 5 you know cumulatively so I mentioned at the end of our 1989 draft last week that I thought I could take this from you 9 to 1 that's how confident I was when I look at the two lists and the thing is like I'll be honest like 
at the end of the draft and I looked at it, I, I can't imagine anyone picking your list over mine. It just doesn't make sense to me. So just, just a quick review of our list. Shall we do that? Sure. So my list, I had Batman and I had Major League, I think it was, in Driving Miss Daisy. And then my TV shows, I had Seinfeld, The Simpsons, and Family Matters. And my songs were Bust a Move by Young MC, Love Shack by the B-52s, and Funky Cold Medina by Tone Loke. And my personal pick was Field of Dreams. And your movies, you went with Christmas Vacation. And then what was your second movie that you took again? Do the Right Thing. Oh, Do the Right Thing. That's right. And then you took The Little Mermaid, which I thought was a weird pick. And your TV shows were Saved by the Bell, uh, Doogie Howser, MD, and Baywatch. And then your songs were Like a Prayer by Madonna. Free Falling, Tom Petty. Girl, You Know It's True by Nilly Vanilli. And then your personal pick was Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. I looked at these lists and I looked at them over and over after our draft and I was like, I'm going to sweep you like nine nothing. Well, I don't know. My, my music picks are strong. I think that's draft ever draft. If we just did music, I think I would be winning. But anyway, it, it's, it's yeah. a whole package. I, yeah. I get it. And the, and the TV show is like, like, you know, some people said, well, you know, the TV show like Seinfeld and The Simpsons are known for later. But the thing is, the rules of the draft are the, 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 the show has to debut in that year. So, you know, most TV shows don't hit their stride for a couple of years. But for shows that debuted in that year, like there's no question. So uh, anyway, like I said, I thought I was going to beat you nine nothing. But guess what? This was the closest vote we've had so far. I was wrong. Oh my God. It was, I thought I was going to absolutely torch you. And it was the closest vote that we had, we've had so far. But which way did it go? So it's time to see now how our judges voted and who the winner of the 1989 pop culture fantasy draft was. You won five to four. You you wrestled the Funko Fonzie trophy away from me. I'm very sad. At least until our, until our next draft, when my goal is going to be to crush you. So, oh my God, congratulations. A five to four vote. You won. You've won yourself a uh, fantasy draft. Like I say, I I don't understand nothing against, I. you know how much I love our judges. I love the judges more than, than anyone else in the whole wide world. But I don't know what they were thinking. It just didn't make sense to me. But hey, what well, do I know? I, I had a sense of, uh, I knew it wasn't going to be a clean sweep because a couple of days ago I, I asked my wife, I'm like, oh, did, cause I know she's one of the people who votes and I never, I never ask for her help doing the list because I know she's a voter because a lot of times I want to, I'm like, well, what do you think is it? And I'm like, no, 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 got to keep it impartial. So she's voted for your list every time. And so earlier this week, I said, she's smart. I said, did you get around to, to voting on the lists yet? And she's like, yeah, yeah. And I go, which one did you vote for? And then she's like, oh, let me check. And she goes, oh, I voted for this one. I go, oh, my God, that was mine. And she's like, oh, well, that's the first time I voted for yours. And I thought, oh, well, maybe things might actually fall my way this time. So, and you were like, I'm going to have a clean sweep. I'm like, well, if nothing else, he's not going to have a clean sweep. <laughs> one of the voters actually said they voted for mine and then went back and listened to the show and decided to change it to yours because of the TV shows. Again, not, you know, really hitting their stride until the nineties. But I mean, that's, but that's the rules that we have to, to draft within. But Hey man, I got hosed on that exact same thing. in one of the earlier drafts, when mm -hmm. I picked Jeopardy and people were like, yeah. that's not an eighties show. I'm like, okay, well I'm learning my lesson then. But yeah, it's, it's really difficult to pick a show that hits its stride right from the get go. Because no, well, no shows yeah. do that, you know, but especially like it, with the 1989, draft. like in 1981 yeah. or 82 or 83, if it takes a few years, no big deal. It's still in the eighties. But I mm -hmm. knew with this 89 draft, yeah. that was going to be, 
a potential uh, uh, problem. That's why when you were like, I'm going to take Seinfeld and the Simpsons, and even I said during the draft, I'm like, I had them on my list, but I was hesitant to take mm-hmm. them. I wanted shows that I felt were a little more uh, of the moment. For the, even for the even your movies, like, I mean, The Little Mermaid? Like, I mean, jeez, man. I tell you, movies are usually no, a big part of the year. Nostalgia, man. Gotta go uh, with that nostalgia. Oh, just, I don't get it. But uh, anyway, so on to our movie review for this week. Derek, you got to pick any movie that you wanted from the year of 1989. Oh, and by the way, congratulations. Thanks, uh, on, on your on your win. You, you, you did really well. So, so for your movie, you went with When Harry Met Sally which was a yep. little bit odd because it wasn't on your list in any way. You didn't really it mention was, it. It was literally the next movie on my list if if we had had to pick one more movie. Or if you had taken one of, one more movie off of the list I had ready. It was it was on my list. I just, I didn't feel it was a strong mm. enough pick. And Yeah. So anyway, so before we get into the movie and we're going to kind of break it all down and everything, maybe you'd like to explain a little bit about why you chose this movie for us to review. Could have picked anything. 1989, there was quite a few movies. So why When Harry Met Sally? Why do you want me to watch this one and review it? Sure. Well, obviously it had to be from 1989. And we had obviously already reviewed a couple from 1989. We'd already done Major League. And um, do the right thing. There we go. Yes, I knew there was a couple on the and do the right thing. Uh, I I didn't want to do a sequel if I didn't have to. And there were a ridiculous amount of sequels. I didn't want to do Batman because, again, superhero fatigue. And again, there's a a lot of things to like, but maybe not like about Batman. So I want to stay away from that. Indiana Jones sequel. Didn't want to do that. So, again, once I started narrowing down the list, I I thought, you know what? Um, When Harry Met Sally is, in my opinion, a great movie. I really enjoy it. Uh, I watch it frequently when I have an opportunity. If I see it's on cable or sometimes I'll just throw in the DVD and away we go. Um, I remember seeing it in the theater uh, when it first came out in the ni- in 1989 and I loved it right away. And I remember watching it again over the years as I matured as a, as a person. Well, arguably, uh, let's say as I grew up mm-hmm. and started to experience more of of life and, and maybe get a better understanding and appreciation for the relationships of the characters. And I found that I started to like the movie even more as I got older because I could identify a little more closely with some of the the challenges that the characters went through. And um, I think there's just so much to like about this movie. And after watching it again this week, I think it really, really holds up very well. And I knew that you either had not seen it or had not seen it in a long time or maybe had not seen it in its entirety. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to sit down, watch it start to finish and get your uh, get your thoughts on it. So in a nutshell, that was why I picked it. Nice. So I wasn't really sure. Like I was like, I don't think I've seen this. So um, I had never seen it. I, I had not seen this movie because I put it on. I was like, no, I've never seen this. So I watched it with my wife, as I usually do. Had she and seen it? No, she had not. So wow, it was okay. fresh for both of us. And and going into it, my wife was just thrilled because she's, she's like, oh, this is such a good pick because, you know, like I say, she hadn't seen it either. And I, you know, I think she thought it was like a good pick for us to watch because I make her watch all these movies with me. And for a change, I wasn't making her watch a dystopian future movie, you know, or some dumbass Marvel movie or something like that. So, so she was happy with the choice. And it was funny because when it was over, she turned to me and she's like, I really like that. You know, I'm a little bit on the fence with this one. I think it was it was definitely a product of its time. And and the thing is, like, I mean, we all know this. I, I'm totally OK with that. I mean, I love the 80s. I love anything Gen X. But in some ways, this movie was just OK for me, because I think overall, it's just it's kind of a one note movie, you know. But I don't know. I'm, 
so so like I'll, I'll be I'll be honest with you. like last week I, I put it over to you to nominate a film from '89, and I was really surprised at this. Like I mean, it's not the most popular movie from that year. And it doesn't feel like a movie that's endured. I don't think it's an overly nostalgic movie. And the thing is, Derek, from what I know about you, and I mean, we've been friends for 25 years, you're not a huge fan of romantic comedies, from what I know. So maybe we can start with that. So do you think this movie is a quote-unquote romantic comedy? No. Me neither. Not a, no. I, I think it's more not, of a drama. I would not classify it as that. I would say it's a drama that has funny parts in it. It's like a relationship drama, if that's even yeah. a genre. I don't know, but it's considered to be a romantic comedy by most people. But yeah, I don't think it is either, you know. Um, okay, so it's directed by Rob Reiner, starring Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, uh, written and produced by Nora Ephron. It had a budget of $16 million. It grossed $92 million at the domestic box office. So that was good enough for the an 11th place finish that year. So it was a pretty decent success with audiences, yep. I think you could Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Yeah. Not not a lot of romantic comedies, you know, go on to break box office records. You know, you don't see a lot of like blockbuster lines around the corner waiting to get in to see these kinds of movies. But I mean, this one, this one did OK. So like I can say it finished 11th just before Back to the Future Part 2 and just ahead of Turner and Hooch and Uncle Buck. But uh, ahead of it, too, were Parenthood and Dead Poets Society and Ghostbusters 2. There was a lot of sequels that year. A lot right. of sequels that year. Yeah, yeah. Lethal Weapon 2 and all the way up. Um so I think I'd like to start, if you if you don't mind, can we start with Rob Reiner? I want to talk a little bit Definitely. about Rob Reiner. Um, obviously, son of the legendary Carl Reiner. And he played Meathead, Mike Stivick, on All in the Family back in the 70s. So one thing that came to my mind, I was watching this, was a, a while ago, Derek, it, was, it might have been a couple of years now, we did a show on directors that had a run of good movies. And yeah, I, I don't yeah, know if I streets, mentioned yeah. him, or if I, but Rob Reiner had one hell of a run there back in the 80s, didn't he? Uh, yeah, I'm just looking at his uh, at his film credits here. Yeah, this he had a couple, of, a couple of missteps, but along the way, he did pretty good. Yeah, Spinal but Tap. You start with Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, you know, whether you like uh, it or not. So I don't know The Sure Thing. It was I'll pretty take good. Your word for it was it. pretty good. Stand By Me. Solid. The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, yeah. and A Few Good Men. Yeah. Good God, that's not too shabby. Like, that's a pretty good. And the thing is, too, as I look at this, like, I think of Misery and Sam and Me. I used to be a huge Stephen King fan when I was a teenage fan. Uh, like, I, was, I loved his books. And the thing was, I always found that they, they didn't necessarily make very good movies. Like, Cujo and Firestarter and Christine and even Pet Cemetery. Like, there always seemed to be a bit of a disconnect between the book and, and what the director envisioned. For the screen, but for me, Rob Reiner was was one director that seemed to be able to translate Stephen King to the big screen pretty decently. Any thoughts on that? Were you a Stephen King fan? No, I mean, I'm never. I would never. I'm not a big fan of the horror genre. Uh, I've read a few Stephen King books more in the last say 20 years, but when Stephen King was like big in the 80s and 90s, I, I just I never really got it. I was an avid reader, but not so much. But a lot of my friends read his books and loved them. And again, knowing most of them were horror, even when they were converted into movies, I didn't watch the movie. Like I just it didn't interest me. But Misery, I, I don't necessarily I wouldn't classify that as a horror movie. It's more of or like Stand a by thriller. Me. Stand by me was yeah, a horror and that either. that was one of the the yeah. ones uh Stephen King did that novella where it's the four yeah. novel the four stories. And I think three of the four got turned into movies. I ended up reading that one just because I knew they had 
turned them into, into movies. One and the, one of the ones in there was uh, Shawshank Redemption, which is you know arguably one of the best movies of all time. Um, and then again, though, not a horror movie. And you got The Green Mile, not a horror movie. Again, it's a pretty decent Stephen King adaptation. It just seems that when they go to his horror stuff, the the you know the train falls off the tracks. Whether it's because the kind of things that Stephen King uh, is envisioning are just not conducive to putting on the big screen or I don't know what it is. Anyway, that's that we're getting a little off topic here. Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 but I mean, he started out as an actor, Rob Reiner did just like his dad kind of followed mm-hmm. in his dad's footsteps. His dad started off as an actor and just wasn't sort of the leading man kind of thing. Like, you know, so he ended up giving the job. Uh, so he was working on the Dick Van Dyke show. And he, and he gave that job to uh, to Dick Van Dyke. He was originally going to play the role of Rob Petrie. Um, and Rob Ryder kind of followed in his footsteps, you know, started off as an actor, got a little bit tight cast as Meathead, you know, and so decided to, to use his creative juices to go into to directing. And, and I'm kind of glad he did because the world's better off as a result. So let's talk a bit about the cast. Billy Crystal. I'll be honest. I thought he was miscast in this movie. Really? Yeah. I, so... Yeah. It's funny you mention that. So I watched this movie with my wife again, one of her favorites, one of my favorites. We watched it. And after it, we talked about it. I said, I always ask her, knowing we're going to talk about the podcast. I said, if you were to give this movie a a score out of 10 or a letter grade, what would you give it? And so we talked about it for a minute. And then we talked about the things we liked and didn't like. One of the things we both agreed on was we thought the movie was perfectly cast. Hmm. We thought Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan were, were perfectly cast as the main characters. We thought Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher were phenomenally cast as the two friends. And we said, like, I, I couldn't imagine anyone else in the role doing as good a job. I think I, I, you know, I think they all did a great job. I think they were all very well cast. So I'm surprised to hear you say that. Well, for me, his character is supposed to be kind of a womanizer and a bit of a Casanova. And that's not Billy Crystal. So no, although, hang on though. So I agree with you, but I disagree with you. Mm. I agree with you that yes, he's he's definitely a womanizer. They talk about how he's had all these all these lovers and all these one night stands, but I always got the sense that it's more his use of his charm and his wit and his personality and his humor because obviously he's not leading man handsome. He's not you know the tall broad shoulders. It's like you work with what you've got, and I don't think that we're supposed to believe that this character thinks he's the most handsome guy in the room ever. Um, and that he relies on those other things. And that, that was always the impression I got from this film. And, and I found that totally believable. And the character is based on Rob Reiner. Like Rob Reiner came up with the idea for the script. And he, he based this on himself and his relationship with uh, his ex-wife, Penny Marshall. So maybe Billy Crystal's a bit of a step up, you know, in the manly man department. Yeah, maybe. Not to take anything away from Rob Reiner, but I mean, like, he's not exactly like a handsome dude. But I, for me, I wonder how this movie would have come off with someone like Warren Beatty, maybe in the title role. Oh, no, it wouldn't, wouldn't have worked at all. Yeah, I don't know. It would have been interesting no. to see. I'm not saying it would have worked. It just would have been interesting. Okay, because, so, hold on. Yeah. Part of the reason I don't think that would have worked is mm-hmm. I think it needs to be clear that Megs Ryan's character is not attracted to Billy Crystal at all, physically. She Like, it's very clear when she meets him, she doesn't like him. She doesn't feel that his personality appeals to her. And then through the course of the movie, they meet. They don't necessarily get along that well. And then it's it's only after she, like, gets to know him and spends some time with him. And, like, you know, like, it's sort of the she needs to really get to see what he's really like. And I think if he was Warren Beatty handsome, that would be a harder harder for the audience to believe that she looks at him and goes, nah, I don't like this guy. It's mm-hmm. like, eh, I think the guy needs to be more average and, and it's going to take some time to really, you know, pull back the layers and go, well, what do I like about this guy? So speaking of Meg Ryan, let's talk about her a little bit. So she got started on TV, mostly doing soap operas. And then she was in Charles in charge 
she she had this like short hair. She was kind of a tomboy in it. And just just as an aside, a little story about Charles in charge. So when I first moved in with my wife, we weren't married yet. I had set up this big screen TV. This is back when like big screen TVs were like floor mounted, you know, like the rear projection models. I had one of yep. those. And I remember in our house, I hooked it up and then I set up the cable. Now you got to keep in mind, I moved from a really small town to a big city. And so there was this TV station that we got that I didn't get back in my hometown. And it was called TV Land. Do you remember that one, Derek? You remember yeah, TV I think Land? it's still available on some cable services. Oh, cool. I didn't think it was around. But anyway, so I hook up the TV and Charles in Charge was on. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I love this show. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Oh, my God. I can't feel my face. And for some reason, she still married me. I don't know why, because I'm such a dork. But uh, anyway, so uh, what were we? Oh, Meg Ryan. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so we, She's very interesting to me because she always had this reputation for being like the girl next door. You know, like not like the head cheerleader or the prom queen, but like, you know, the girl that's kind of cute, you know. And I have no idea why she was ever thought of this. She is flat out gorgeous in this movie. Oh, yeah. In this My movie, she's never, she never God. looked good. She, like, she is, I can't, she, is she ever a beautiful human being? And it's like, I mean, this is the girl next door. I never lived next door to anyone that looked like that. Oh my God. Which, which I think brings me back to like the casting of Billy Crystal. Like she's too good looking for him, you know? And, and speaking of another tangent, I want to go on for a second if I could. So this is, this is something, you know, that, that, that this happened a lot in Gen X pop culture, I think, you know, with girls being too good looking for the male counterparts. But you and I have mentioned this before because it still happens in pop culture now. My kids, in addition, when they're not watching like people on YouTube playing Minecraft and crap like that, they watch a couple of these live action shows for kids. They're, they're like, kind of like sitcoms for kids, you know, for lack of a better term. There's one called Good Luck Charlie they watch. And then there's another one called, it's like Ricky, Nicky, Dicky, Dawn and Dawn or something like that. And both of these shows, I'm watching them with them, like they got it on. And I'm like, the mom is way too hot for the dad. Like the mom looks like a movie star and the dad is basically like me. You know? So this it's, is a thing. Yeah, it's right? a trope. It's the fat husband, yeah. skinny wife. Like that's yeah. every sitcom is that. It's fat husband, skinny wife. Even I mean, the Simpsons and Family Guy. Like yeah. it's that. Fat husband, skinny wife. That's that's what you know. People assume that's what it's gonna be. So when people are creating new shows, it's like why go with something different? Let's use the formula that's worked for 50 years. It's like, come on, guys. Like, so do you think you don't that think she... that the skinny wife's going to leave or cheat on the fat husband? Like, come on. Sorry, Chris. I mean, just happens. <laughs> do you think um, do you think Meg Ryan's too too pretty for uh, for Billy Crystal? I do, but I think that's needed for this role for exactly the opposite counterpoint I was making before of, of course, he's attracted to her because she's beautiful. Now, he does go on right at the beginning to talk about how like men can be men can't be friends with women because they want to potentially have sex with them. And then she's like, well, what about if they're not attractive? And he's like, no, no, you pretty much want to have sex with them, too. So he's basically broad statement. He's saying every man wants to potentially sleep with every woman they ever meet. But the fact that she's so beautiful, he obviously doesn't give up on it. Like when he meets her again, he tries to hit on her again. And it's like this whole thing where it's almost like a mystery to him why she doesn't find him attractive. And and it's, it's that rejection of the physical relationship that eventually allows them to become actual friends, you know, the 10 years after their first meeting. And I think if she wasn't as beautiful, 
the character of Billy Crystal is so shallow that he probably wouldn't have initially tried to continue to pursue this relationship. So I think you need that dichotomy of she is super hot, super beautiful, and he's just this average guy who can be witty and funny, but still a little insensitive from time to time and clearly more of a womanizer than some people would give him credit for. You know, another thing about her, if I'm remembering back to like the 90s, she took a lot of flack for apparently having plastic surgery. Now, I haven't seen her lately. I don't know what she looks like now, but I remember that was all a bunch of BS back when it was going on. I remember that because there was this one photo of her where she's like, she's slightly curling her lip a little bit. And all the tabloids are like, oh, look, at she's had plastic surgery. Look at her lip. Like, look at her lips. Those things are such a bunch of rags. I'll tell you what, you know, a bunch of BS that was. But I liked her in this movie. I thought she was very charismatic. Uh, she's definitely a talented actress from what I saw here. And another thing about her too, which I thought was interesting, because this movie takes place over several years, it keeps jumping ahead, you know, five years, five years and, you know, six months and everything like that. She gets to show off multiple hairstyles throughout the movie, which I thought was interesting. So, yeah, well, and I mean, Billy Crystal, to a lesser extent, you know, he grows the beard and he shaves the beard. Like that's your typical guy thing is it's like as a young man, no facial hair. And then as he gets older, he gets a Mm -hmm. mustache. Then he gets a beard. Then there's some gray in it. And then eventually when he's much older, he shaves it off. Everyone goes, oh, you look so much better. So, I mean, guys, there's a lot less to work with in that regard. But yeah, for women, I got to assume, again, the movie's written by a woman. I assume that they did their homework and and they made sure that the hairstyles were suitable for the time frame in which the movies were supposed. I mean, I certainly felt that they were appropriate, but I'm not really one to judge when it comes to women's hair. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that it was written by a woman because I think we should, I'd like to talk about a few people that work behind the scenes of the movie. Nora Ephron obviously wrote the script. The great Nora Ephron. She went on to direct movies uh, of her own, like Sleepless in, the, in Seattle and You've Got Mail, both of which she wrote the screenplays for too. Mm-hmm. But and she kind of became a, like the queen of the rom coms there for a bit, but I think she's she's always seemed to make some like good quality material. Like her scripts are always sharp; they're they're always smart. It wasn't just drivel like you see on the Hallmark Channel, you know, around Christmas time, you know, like the, stuff like that. You know, like I was, yeah, I always I thought she was yeah. really smart. Yeah, I mean her her movie credits. Uh, I'm looking at her IMDb. Like she, between her writing, her producing, her directing, like she has a, a solid movie uh, movie moviography. Is that filmography? Filmography. And I mean, there obviously there's some that were super hits, like When Harry Met Sally and and Sleepless in Seattle. Um, and then some that were you know not as great, but they can't all be winners. But again, you gotta. I always want to take this with a grain of salt, especially when it comes to to female movie makers. Is I always uh, think back to that time, and it's an industry that's run by men. So you got to wonder how much how much freedom she would have had to do exactly what she wanted to do versus how much editing was required. How much did the producers and the other people around her that were most likely men in positions of power force changes upon her vision to make it what it was? And then when people went, well, that movie wasn't that good. It's like, yeah, but did you let her do what she wanted to do? Like, again, I I don't have any basis for making this this judgment other than just knowing how Hollywood tends to work. But I got to think with a lot of uh, female creators, that's the kind of thing that happens. But uh, but um, again, she got a lot of phenomenal A-plus list credits on here that, that were super successful. So. There was a, a few other people that worked behind the scenes I want to mention. Barry Sonnenfeld was the director of photography, and he went on to direct movies himself. He did um, the Adams Family movies 
and the Men, Men in, in Black. Black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All those those sequels and stuff too. And I wanted to give a special shout out to the musical composer of this film, which his name was Mark Shaman. I don't know if you know him, but he was a legendary musical director from Broadway. And he collaborated with Trey Parker and Matt Stone on Bigger, Longer, and Uncut and Team America World Police. So nice. I, I wouldn't give him a shot. I saw his name in the credits at the beginning. I was like, oh, my God. And so a couple more cast members. Well, hang on. Touch yeah. So since you brought up music, I, I yeah. want to just slide this in then. So, again, my wife and I talking about it after. And one of the things we both agreed was that the music, the score, the choice of sort of the older style music really lent itself nicely to the, to the movie. And we felt that part of the reason, in our opinions, that it didn't really feel dated was because the music was older music that was sort of like more uh, timeless sounding. Mm-hmm. And and then the, for the, the quote unquote newer stuff, it was uh, done by Harry Connick Jr. And he had this success with the cover of the Frank Sinatra tune, It Had to Be You, um, which is phenomenal. And he's I, a throwback I, himself. Like he still has a kind of that crooner style. So yeah, it's kind of timeless absolutely. as well. Yeah, and it yeah. worked very well. Yeah, and I mean, I, I I love the score for this. Again, I think mm-hmm. there's a lot to like about this movie, and the music is just, you know, it's sort of like the icing on the cake. I think the music is great. I think the score is great. And uh, yeah, it's definitely definitely one more plus in my book is the music. So the two supporting characters I want to also mention, Carrie Fisher. I mean, she really got typecast there, obviously. I mean, it's it's got to be hard playing a character like Princess Leia. You know, that's that's really tough to shake. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. uh, but I mean, she was basically born as Hollywood royalty. I mean, her parents were Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher, and she went on to become one of the biggest movie princesses of all time. But I mean, like she did a couple other movies. She was in the Blues Brothers and Under the Rainbow. And if you remember, she did an uncredited cameo in the first Austin Powers movie, which I thought she was really good in that scene. But other than that, like she she kind of struggled to find her, you know, to find roles in Hollywood. You know, like she well, I, I do seem to remember she had a, a lot of problems with substance abuse, she which did. I, I got to think played yeah. into that at least a little bit. But but, I still but she did have a very successful Broadway career after. Didn't she do like like one woman monologue plays and stuff? And did she write a very successful book like she? Yeah, she, I mean, she, she, she wrote a book which was, was based on her relationship with her mother, which was uh, made into a movie called Postcards from the Edge. You which know, I never so. saw, but I, I know was based on that. And I, I mean, again, she did have ups and downs in her career, mm-hmm. but she certainly had a lot of ups yeah. as far as success. I mean, yeah, she hit some speed bumps along the way. Um, but yeah, we can't we can't just write her off entirely. No, 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 no I, I, I don't, and I don't mean to. Like, I don't mean to. I got to think she was cashing Star Wars checks right up and, until, yeah. you know, R.I.P. Carrie Fisher, but right up until the day she died. I, the thing was, I like, I mean, she was an interesting casting choice because she didn't bring a lot to that role that another actress couldn't have brought either. So I, it was interesting. Bruno Kirby, I want to mention too. Um, his two biggest roles, I think, were probably this and maybe City Slickers, both with Billy Crystal by the way. But he was also the bad guy in Good Morning Vietnam, if you remember. I do, yeah. I always remember him from from Spinal Tap, though. He was the limo driver talking about Frank Sinatra's book. The thing is, like, he's, he's, again, he's not really a leading type, you know. He's not a leading man actor, you know, kind of thing. Don't forget, he was also in The Godfather, too. He had a small role. Oh, that's right, he did, too. That's where I always remember from other than this. The thing for this movie is that... (laughs) The entire movie sort of hangs on this single premise, you know, and you brought it up, that men and women can't be friends because sex always gets in the way. On one hand, it feels like it kind of represents 80 sensibilities, 
Um, so I think for that reason, it struck chord, a chord with audiences, you know, but I mean, does that theme hold up today, I guess, is the, is the question, because it's, it, I guess in a lot of ways, it's it's a timeless question, you know, that people have probably been asking themselves, for, you know, since the beginning of time, you know, can you be friends, you know, can men and women be friends, um, you know, because of this, I mean, and, and I don't know, it's, it's an interesting question, what do you think? I, I think it was true then, and I think it's true now. I think just people hopefully have a little more sensibility about how to voice and how to act on that uh, that eventuality. So I know that, again, talking with my wife about it, and she said when she saw this movie for the first time, she's like, she had no idea whether or not that, that concept was true because she's like, well, you know, I didn't know that. But she said when she talked to all of, all of her men friends, she's like, is that true? And every one of them was like, of course that's yep. true. <laughs> And she said, she's like, yeah. as a woman, she had no idea. And mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that's that's part of what this movie does well, is it really does show, a it shines a fairly good and accurate light on both the way men and women approach relationships and what they value in a relationship and, you know, the ups and downs and, you know, like little things. Billy Crystal points out a lot of things in many cases in a way that's designed to be humorous, but is quite insensitive in a lot of times. And like right away when he, I think one of the very first encounters he, he has with Meg Ryan and he talks about something like, oh, after, you know, after you have sex, you're the, probably the kind of girl who likes to be held. How long do you like to be held? And he's like, let me guess, it's somewhere between 30 seconds and the next day. Like, that's your problem. And it's like, but is that really a problem? But again, it's this idea of what, what men's expectations are and women's expectations are or were. I mean, these these expectations might change, might have changed over the 30 years since the movie came out. But I, these are the kind of things that, aren't often talked about between two people, especially when they're first starting a relationship. So it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting way to, to, to look at this and potentially have these conversations. I will say that, I mean, it could have just followed a, a typical sort of storytelling arc as a, as a film, but it was, it was a little bit stylistic at times. Mm -hmm. I like, I like how the opening scene is him kissing a girl and, and she's yes. looking on and then it jumps to five years later. And the scene is, She's kissing a guy and he's looking on, yep. which I thought was kind of neat. And Rob Reiner does this a couple of times throughout the films. He uses some of these stylistic devices. Um, there's a few split screen shots that he. Oh, the one where they're on the phone. Yeah. Where it's the couple in bed and then they're each on the left. That scene is fantastic. That That's got to be one of the best shots in the movie. Quite well done. And I also like the scene where Billy Crystal and Bruno Kirby are, are talking at the Giants cages. Oh, at the Giants game. Yeah. And the wave keeps coming around. And even though the conversation is, it's a total downer. Billy Crystal's basically pouring his heart out about his divorce. But they keep doing the wave <laughs> as it comes. Because it was, cause it was that was the thing to do back at the sporting events yeah. in the 80s. And it was just the, the, the juxtaposition of, you know, him talking about something that was like just, you know, pouring his heart out about getting divorced and then and then doing the wave. <laughs> you know, I thought was yeah. kind of an interesting stylistic thing. I think we need to talk about the scene in Katz's Deli in Manhattan because sure. I mean, you can't talk about this. I mean, that's about arguably when, the most famous scene of the movie. Of course. Um, the, interesting, that scene was not in the original script. So they start filming the movie and they realize, you know, we got a problem here. This Everything's just about Harry. You know, like they, they needed to get her, you know, more into the story. Now, it might have had something to do with with casting Meg Ryan because she's just so charismatic. I mean, they yeah. they, they needed to give her more to do, you know. So Nora Ephron and uh, Rob Reiner came up with the idea for this scene. 
And then there's, of course, there's the famous line. I'll have what she's having. Yeah. So a, a few things about that. The woman that delivers a line, you know who that was? It was uh, Rob Reiner's mother, wasn't it? Yes, it was Estelle Reiner was his mother. Yeah. She was married to Carl Reiner for 65 years, you know. And another interesting thing about that line, when they showed the, this, this movie and this scene in particular to test audiences, it got a huge laugh from women. And the men were almost always silent after that line is said. <laughs> totally a joke for women, obviously. My yeah. wife laughed at it when we watched it. I didn't. I mean, I knew it was coming. Like, I mean, I hadn't seen the movie, but I knew about that line. I mean, it's one of the most famous movie quotes of all time. So, I mean, I knew it was coming, but uh, I thought that was really interesting, an interesting take on it. So, Yeah, I mean, the 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 scene is arguably the most famous scene from the movie. People who have never seen the movie know the scene. They've probably seen it on YouTube or on television on clip shows. Um, it's, it was, uh, it's, it's super memorable. So I, I really don't think there's anything more we can say about it that hasn't been said 50 times before. Right. They try and set each other up with their friends. Yeah. Right? And then the friends end up hitting it off, you know, and they end up getting married. Yep. And I think, you know, like, like any good script, of this kind, it, it, it keeps pointing the characters back at each other, right? Yeah. And, of course, the scene when he goes to see her when she's upset, you know, and then they kiss and they go to bed together. Yep. For me, this is where the script gets very interesting. So, I, you know, I, I, Derek, I've mentioned, you know, many times on this, this show, like, all movies follow the same plot devices, right? It's like boy meets girl, boy loses girl, and boy gets girl back. This is how... 99% of movie scripts work. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing here for me was that in the second act, when the boy loses the girl, that's when he ends up sleeping with her. And it's kind of central to the message of the, of the film because that's when their relationship changes. So essentially, he loses the girl at this point. Yeah. So it kind of flip-flops things. It kind of you know flips things on his head. I, I thought that was a pretty smart twist in the script writing, I felt as I was watching this film. Well, and I like the fact that the the fact that they didn't immediately stay together was ninety nine percent his his doing. Like they have the dinner after where they're like, "Oh, I think it was a mistake" and all that, and then she says it and he agrees with it, and then as far as he's concerned, case closed, and he's not intuitive enough to realize that she's sort of saying that to try and, and and patch things up but that's not really what she means and he like literally just starts going to eat his dinner and he's like isn't it great you can just eat dinner and not talk and it's like clear from the expression on her face that that was not the right way to handle that but he doesn't even pick up on it and then it's not until she sort of cuts him out of his life that he starts to realize like oh man i think i screwed that up and he's he's calling her and calling her and calling her and she's like not having any of it she's like you've had your chance and you blew it um, well, the next so morning yeah. after they slept together, it starts then because she's all smiles and he's totally freaked out. Yeah. Because his core belief is that men and women cannot be friends because sex always gets in the way. That's the way he words it, which is interesting, too. Yes. Because he says sex gets in the way. So early in the movie, we take this to mean that men and women can't be platonic friends, like you mentioned, right. because they always think about having sex. But... I think for me, like what you start to learn is that what that actually means is that, you know, in this case, they become friends first. And then by sleeping together, 
sex gets in the way and therefore they can't ever be friends. You know, again, the, the, the script yeah. kind of flips, you know, notions on their head, which I, I think is one of the better parts of the movie for me. I think the script writing and Meg Ryan are the two best parts of this movie. That's for me. I, I mean, I, I just like the movie in general. I, I, I think it works on so many levels. The New Year's Eve scene, you know, like the kind of the big finale. It starts with them and they're, they're, uh, he's watching Dick Clark on TV at Times yes. Square. Yep. I got a question for you. What the hell? Maybe it was just me. But what was going on with Dick Clark's teeth? Go back and it's watch me. that one scene. It, Dick Clark looks like he's wearing novelty teeth. He looks like Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Ooh, bad like, I'm reference. Seriously, bad I'm reference. like, what the hell's Dude. going on? It was so weird. So, I don't know. Oh, another plot device that I think was well done. And again, I think it has more to do with the script than the director. But the interviews with the older couples throughout the movie, thought that was pretty cool. Because they all focus on mundane aspects of their relationship. Right. You know, like, they're meant to seem like they're like kind of boring. You know, as, almost as if they're saying, like, long-term relationships grow stale. And there's even a point where Meg Ryan, where remember, she, she says her and her ex were, they were together and they didn't have kids. And then they would brag about being able to, to do it on the kitchen floor and go off to Paris. But the only thing is, they never actually did it on the kitchen floor and they never went to Paris. You know, Der- Derek, you don't have kids. Do you ever do it on the kitchen floor and then go off to Paris? I don't, uh, I don't. I'm not the kind of guy that kisses and tells, but <laughs> yes. So well, good for you. You can bleep that part out so people don't don't know what my <laughs> but, but with um, those, hang on, hang on. I want to yeah. I want to stop because I disagree with what you've said. Okay. I, the parts with the um, the parts with the older couples. So when I first saw this in the theater, the movie starts with one of those interviews of the older couples, and I remember when I first saw the movie for the very first time in the theater, I'm like. What what's happening here? Where is this going? Because there's no context. You get the the little story about how they met, and then it cuts to the movie begins with you know Billy Crystal kissing his girlfriend goodbye and Meg Ryan driving the car, and then you have the scene with them. And it's not for about ten or fifteen minutes that then you get another one of these, and you start to go, oh, I guess we're gonna because I'm like the first time I'm thinking to myself, so was this supposed to be Harry and Sally? Because right. it was called when Harry met right. Sally. You're like, okay, well Harry and Sally are clearly the main two characters. So is this supposed to be them much older? And so it was a little bit, I don't want to say hard to follow, but it was, I was definitely confused as, as a part of the audience. Sure. Then when we see another one, I'm like, okay, well, these are clearly a different couple. Is this supposed to be Harry and Sally? And then, okay, I guess not. Then it, you know, you saw three or four of them through the course of the movie. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. They're just these, these people retelling these stories. And honestly, it didn't even occur to me that that was how they were going to end the movie. But I'm like, of course, that's how they're going to end the movie. That's just so perfect that that's how they're going to end the movie. So there was that part of it. But I I disagree with what I think the point you were making was you were saying that, oh, it's these old couples and, you know, the love gets stale and all the rest of that. And I was like, I disagree. I think the idea of these stories is to show that when you love someone, you can be in these long term relationships and you can stay with them. Like, I think one of the couples says they've been together 55 years or something. And it's like, holy cow, like that's forever and they but they still remember the first time they met and how they fell in love and it's like obviously mm. you know they're they're found their their one their true love their person and so i that's how i always got it was these were these inspirational stories of when you meet the right person and you have this interesting story about how you met and why you met and how you got together and stayed together you can last the 50 years or more okay take what i've said 
and go back and rewatch the movie with my take on it. The very one of the I think it's the first or the second couple the interview. The guy's talking. He's like, "Oh, you know, we we were introduced and whatever, and fifty five years later, and we're still going strong." And she gives a quick little dart with her eyes to look down, and it was like mm, she doesn't agree with him. That's what I took from it. No, you're oh, you're reading way I too think much so. And even no, like the, the, the Oriental couples talking, she doesn't do any of the talking. He's like, oh yeah, we're in love, and we're. In love. And I I don't know. I took it a different way. I oh. I you took felt, it the wrong way. I'm telling you. I don't know. Again, maybe that's Mr. The, cynical going into every movie. No, but the I'm movie, gonna hate but this the movie. movie. Let's is find cynical. something to not like about Come this on. movie. This movie is cynical, and but but the, these interviews. I feel that they, they focus on kind of mundane aspects. And then if you think about it, when they finally show Harry and Sally at the end, they're one of the couples and they're wearing like the sweaters and they've been married for three years, I think at this point, and they're on the interview couch. They talk about mundane things. You know, it's it, it's almost as if to put the final nail in the coffin in this plot point that men and women can never really be true friends because sex always gets in the way. No, you, you, I think you've totally misread this movie. I've seen this movie 25 times or more, uh, definitely more, more than 25 times I've seen this movie. You are 100% right. I, I think this movie is actually very cynical at its heart it, no, it, instead think, of being inspirational and, and a romantic comedy. You know, like, I mean, like, so, you know, like, is there any truth to all that stuff? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Crit- you're, Chris, you're like you're like the the university, and I know this might hit a little close to home. You're like the university professor that says, "Watch Jaws, and we're going to analyze it." And then, and then there's a true to life story. My wife had a teacher like this. Okay, Jaws is just a metaphor for the male penis that's always no. trying to like impose itself. Yeah. And, and I, I don't, I don't buy asked, any of that. And stuff. Steven Spielberg has yeah. been asked on more than one occasion, "Was this is just a metaphor for a penis?" And they're like, "No, it's a story about a shark that eats people." Like. That's not to say that you can't get that reading out of it if you want to find that in there, but that was not the intent of the author or the director. And I think same thing here. What you've said, yeah, you may be able to find what you believe are details in the movie that support what you're saying, but I do not think for one second that any of what you said was intended by the writer, the director, or the performers. I think if you think you can find those details, great, have at it, but I think you're 100% wrong. I don't know, like I said, go back and watch that first interview with that first couple and the way it's structured and how mundane everything comes across. I, the more I think about it, I, I actually, I like this movie less and less the more I think about it. Because, I mean, for a romantic comedy, I think it's cynical. And, and you know, I, I I don't know. I just, it, it has an inherently cynical look on the world. I That's what I, that's my takeaway from it. Wow. Yeah. Right. I don't know. It wouldn't make my, my list of top five romantic comedies, that's for sure. But Wow. That's craziness. What yeah. would you give it a score out of 10? What would you give it? Mm, that's a good question. I think I may give it like a six and a half. Wow. I, I, I For me, this is a solid nine all day oh, long. Oh, wow. Holy I would smokes. I would gladly rewatch this movie again this weekend, even though I just watched it last weekend. Love this movie. Uh, like I said, I've seen it at least 25 times or more. Wow. Uh, certainly there are sections and sequences. If it's on TV, I'll watch it. I, I love everything about this movie. I think the casting was great. I think the performances are great. I think the script is great. I think the the theme works very well. I think it holds up very well. I think the music was great. The direction, like, I, I honestly, there's nothing in this movie. I wouldn't change a thing. 
I, I honestly can't think of anything I don't like about this movie. I think it's great. And I, you know, a lot of times you watch a movie and you go, eh, it was a little too long. It would have cut this 10 minute section out or this part didn't really add into it. I wouldn't change a thing. I think, I think it was exactly as long as it needed to be. I don't think there were any scenes that you could cut out. I think it's great. I'll give it a nine to 10 all day long. And, and I guess, I guess as I kind of talk my way through this and I think it through, it's not, maybe that's not a bad thing that the movie is cynical because I mean, movies are not, they don't, they don't always have rosy endings. They don't always have happy endings. Relationships don't always have happy endings. Relationships are not always black and white and cut and dry. There's a lot of gray areas. And I think that's where this movie kind of digs into some of that stuff. And I think a lot of people, obviously yourself included, have taken away from this movie that it's a little bit more uh, upbeat than what it really is. I think at its heart, it's a little bit more cynical. But again, that's just my take on it. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad movie. It just, it has a different a different take on things for me. That's all I thought, so. Mm. All right, anyway, time now to have some fun with Caveman. Okay, Derek, uh, so one of the things that this movie is known for, obviously, we said, was its famous quote, I'll have what she's having. So mm-hmm. who doesn't like a good movie quote? So Derek, I've come up with a new game for us to play. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> it's called Rock the Quote. Okay? Okay. And where you have to identify the movies in which a particular quote comes from. Okay. Pretty easy, right? I like where this is going. Now, before we get started, Derek, you know, it's been a while since I wrote a new song. Okay. <laughs> Are the questions going to be in musical form or do we get a theme song no. or both? What new segment of the show would be complete? without its own song. This game is called Rock the Quote. No kidding. <laughs> but based on the song, it could very easily be called Rock the Falsetto. I don't know if you rocked it as much as you, you know. <laughs> he killed it. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. So it's Your just as easy as mine. it sounds. All right. I'm okay. going to give you a famous movie quote. Yep. You name the movie that it comes from. Do I need uh, to give you any other details like who said it? No. No. Okay. Just the movie it comes from. So, for example, if I were to say, may the force be with you, the answer would be. Luke Skywalker. No, the movie. The movie. Oh, sorry. Star Wars. God, you suck. Yes, Star Wars. Very good. Because if you would have said episode four, A New Hope, you would have automatically lost the game. You know how I feel about this. It's Star Wars. So very good. Okay. Sure. So here we go. Okay. I'm going to give you a quote. You ready? Yeah. The first one's a long one, but I think it's an easy one. Okay. Yep. Cinderella story out of nowhere, former greenskeeper, now about to become master's champion. It looks like a miracle. It's in the hole. It's in the hole. That was from Caddyshack. Very good. It was. And the thing is, I can't put the inflection into the quotes. You know, I no, I know. Uh, yeah, believe no. me, you were saying it, and I was I was hearing it in Bill Murray's voice. Yeah, of course. Okay. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. That would be National Lampoon's Animal House. And All Chris, right. you know, you know how I remember that? 
Hmm. Our good friend Rob used to have that oh, yeah. as his email signature. Every time he'd send an email, you yep. know, people used to put funny quotes. That was his quote for the longest time. I was the one that got him onto that. So nice. Yes, I remember nice. that. Okay. Nobody puts baby in a corner. Dirty dancing. Very good, Derek. Okay. Shall we play a game? Oh, um, was that war games? Very good. Say hello to my little friend. Scarface. You sit on a throne of lies. Oh, um, oh, you smell like beef and cheese. You sit on a throne of lies. That's, uh, that's the Christmas one. Uh, Elf. It's just a flesh wound. Um, was that uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? We hold the world ransom for one million dollars. Um, oh, was that uh, one million? That was um, uh, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. I see, you're killing it. Yeah. The first rock to quote, I want to make it pretty good. Yeah, yeah. If anyone orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I'm not drinking any Merlot. Beats the hell out of me. No idea. Sideways. I was going to say maybe sideways. Sideways. After, yeah, I thought of it after. Great, great scene. Okay. Stop trying to make fetch happen. Um, I have no idea. Mean girls. Mean girls. I never saw it. Oh, okay. Here's one. It's good to be the king. Oh, uh, that's Mel Brooks. Um, (laughs) It was uh, History of the World Part 1. I drink your milkshake. That was, uh, again, I can, I can, it's Daniel Day-Lewis. And what the hell was that movie called? It was called... Oh, it wasn't, it, I want to say In Cold Blood, but I know that's wrong. It was, geez, I, I, I'm going to say In Cold Blood, but I know that's wrong. I don't know. There will be blood. There will be blood. I knew it was something blood. I drink your yeah. milkshake. Yeah. Again, I can't put the inflection into it. Okay, last one. You're a wizard, Ari. Uh, we're probably from the first uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I'm sorry, it was Potter and the Sorcerer's If you recall, uh, that was from the other I was, week. I was we going to say, have you, have you been searching those uh, adult <laughs> websites again? Make sure you clear your browser history and don't do that from work. <laughs> so, okay. Oh, I, you know one thing I was thinking when I was, I was kind of putting this all together. Um, I want to share with you one of the, the greatest movie quotes of all time that never was. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast, like when we first started out, like back in season one. So this, this quote got cut out of the movie. Well, the, the censors made them take it out. So in the movie Blazing Saddles, there's a scene where, you've obviously seen the movie, you know it. Uh, not in a while, but I have seen it, yes. But you know the scene where Lily Von Stupp, she's alone with the sheriff, and she turns off all the lights. So they're together in total darkness. And she says, is it true what they say about you people being gifted? And you hear a zipper opening. And she says, it's true. It's true. And the scene is over. You remember that scene, right? 
Uh, I don't, but okay. anyway. anyway, it's the scene in the movie. And there's one more joke that got cut out. So as soon as she says, it's true, it's true. Cleavon Little says, I hate to break it to you, lady, but you're sucking on my arm. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and they wouldn't allow it into the movie. All the stuff they allowed into that movie. But that's the thing that they, where they draw the line. You know, they, so anyway, I just thought that was a funny quote. <laughs> it's always la- made me laugh. And Mel Brooks told that story one time and I thought it was funny. So, okay. So we did our pop culture fantasy draft for 1989. Um, you got to pick a movie from that year. So it's, it's over to me. It's my turn. Um, this one I think is going to be interesting for us to come back. Because um, for you, for somehow, I, you don't like this movie, which... I think it's weird because I think with the proliferation of all these comic book movies and the whole Marvel cinematic universe and all that, I think we would be doing a disservice to 1989 and to our whole generational approach to pop culture out here. If we didn't go back to 1989 and watch one of the very first comic book movies ever made and come back here and talk about how it holds up after 33 years. So obviously I'm talking about Batman, Tim Burton's Batman with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. So that's the movie that I think that I want to come come back and watch. All right. Nice. I I haven't honestly I haven't watched it in oh god it's been probably forever. ten years. Oh god. Uh, I mean me, when it came out I enjoyed it, but I I I do seem to recall that in light of today's comic book movies, it just doesn't feel like it holds up. But hey, well, I'll give it a watch. And you Let's, love Batman. Like you you're, I you're do. a huge. You got like six thousand Batman comics. I got books a ridiculous amount of Batman comics. Yeah. And you love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You love Marvel. Marvel's movies. doing it right. DC, yeah. not so much. Although right. the Christopher Nolan Batman's are quite strong. I mean, mm-hmm. you and Yancey yeah. reviewed The Dark Knight on your yep. uh, your show before I joined it. So yeah, I mean, they, they've done it right. They just don't seem to know how to keep doing it right. But let's yeah. go back to 1989. So let's and go back and see, yeah, you know, see what's like. One of the granddaddies that started it all. All right, sounds good to me. So next episode, we're going to come back. We're going to review Batman from 1989, see what holds up after all these years. So until then, this is Chris McBrien on behalf of myself and our producer Sloth and Derek Myers. I want to say thank you very much for taking the time to listen to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.